Yeah, g'day, mate. You're listening to a Radio 191 FM podcast. show about horror and all its permutations, indeed a show about horror crossing over between genre, between medium, and between the real and the fiction. For this episode, we're joined by a guest. We're doing an interview. It's a first time for everything, but hopefully not the last. So I'm pleased as fucking punch to introduce Zach Mummet, host of Shuffle Repeat Podcast one about uh, music exploration of the popular and not so popular, and former host of Are You Morbid, my personal favourite metal podcast, one that no longer exists but had a pretty good run while it was going. How are you doing, Zach? I'm good, and uh, thank you. That means a lot because that show was pretty rough. Oh, man, I've worked as a cleaner for a couple of years now, and let me tell you, early morning shifts where it's just me, the roughness doesn't really, it's not a problem. Having something that's four hours long is exactly <laughs> what I need. I had to be careful not to pick too many albums that were from episodes of Are You Morbid because I'd think of something and go, oh, that'd be perfect. And I go, oh, no, I'm just picking something from Are You Morbid. I need to pick something else. You know, give the listen listeners incentive to go and listen to both Shuffle Repeat and hmm. that there we metal go. podcast. So I'm doing some, some nice little cross-promotion right here. Yeah. Yeah. So the general topic for this episode, we're looking at, horror in music which is something we've touched on before we did an episode on macabre sinister slaughter in particular but music at least when i think of horror is not the first medium for you know my thoughts to arrive at you think of horror movies or books like i don't know dracula or a stephen king book or even video games before music really comes up but for an artistic medium horror has a really rich vein in music and it's something that i really want to explore And uh, I think the reason for reaching out to have you join us is that I know that while I don't think you've done an episode of any podcast that's just horror and music specifically, it is a topic that I know you're interested in and that you've touched on a great many times between your two podcasts. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, something that fascinates me. I don't know if I'll ever fully have a grasp on it, but I'll certainly try for the purposes of this interview. I know that you're you're really interested in horror in and of itself, not just as a pulpy thing to sit down and enjoy on your off time, but you've got kind of an intellectual interest in it as well. Yes, yeah. I guess I should preface this, but just in case we get down any intellectual holes, most of my ideas are just paraphrases of uh, Thomas Ligotti uh, or Eugene Thacker, and of course Lovecraft. But yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in horror as sort of a life philosophy. It's ties to, you know, existentialism and themes of nihilism and, of course, Lovecraft's concept of cosmicism, which I, I don't think really has quite as much relevance nowadays in the post-scientific boom world. But still, it interests me. And just that intersection of, you know, horror and our, our understanding of the world around us. Yeah. For this show, we've kind of taken an approach that horror is a way to understand the world. There might be events out there that we describe as horrifying, but it's not just 
a word we use, there's actually a meaning to horror. And horror is the only way we can understand certain events. So coming at it from an intellectual angle is something I really understand. And I think that is probably in some way a bit of a descendant of Lovecraft's cosmicism insofar as there are certain events that horror is the only way we have to understand them. You know, there's a thin red thread there that I think ties that to the notion of things that we fundamentally cannot understand, but horror seems to be the way that we try. Right. I I think even to just take that even a step further, when you think tens of thousands of years ago, when man was first starting to be cognizant and have awareness of himself. I mean, I don't think we can even really grasp how absolutely terrifying that would have been. I I feel like horror was probably the first emotion that we had. And if you could take that a little further and you look at, you know, creation myths and all these things we tell ourselves to try to attempt to understand the world around us, I feel like there's a pretty good chance and maybe some anthropologists would disagree with me, but a lot of those ideas were probably born out of a sense of fear of the unknown. I I think it really is truly the most primitive and ancient fear. And I think that's why it still resonates so well with so many people. Oh, definitely. Especially like in indigenous cultures, there are a lot of stories I'm thinking within Te Ao Māori, the Māori world here in New Zealand, there are creatures that live in rivers in the sea called Tanifa, that they are both things to be feared, these great serpent beasts that will, with just a flick of its tail, flood an entire plain, but also something to be respected. And telling those stories was a way to prevent people from doing certain things, like playing in a really dangerous river, because a river in and of itself isn't hugely terrifying. If suddenly you put this giant unseeable threat there, that fear then prevents people from taking huge risks when swimming in a river that has a like really dangerous undercurrent. But also part of the stories told people where to build houses and not to build houses, because occasionally, quite predictably, every few decades, there'll be a huge flood. And in one of the towns, Matata, there was a flood from the river where Tanifa's said to live that destroyed all the buildings except the three marae, the traditional meeting places, because they knew the stories of these Tanifa to be both feared and respected. Yeah, and it's it's interesting how that tendency to, you know, create these uh, legends to sort of protect us is so universal and has survived into the modern age. As soon as you brought that up, I was immediately thinking of I'm I'm located in South Central Pennsylvania, which is about as far away from, you know, Aboriginal culture as you can get. But not too far from my house, there is a river and it's a very powerful river. It's the Susquehanna. I think it's like the third largest in the States, but I could be completely wrong there. But it's it's very dangerous in spots. And uh, one of its tributaries in particular, pretty nasty. And uh, even in like just the last hundred years or so this legend has developed of this giant catfish that lurks under the docks and will suck up children if they uh dive into the river and i i think it's much like the aboriginal tales kind of a a twofold thing i think in one sense it's a way to deal with legitimate tragedies and try to bring some sort of order to the chaos but also it's a precautionary tale to try to prevent further tragedy from happening yeah exactly and that is how you know we all benefit from horror even though not the most popular of emotions, fear, to instill in people with stories, but probably one of the more useful. 
I think kind of any urban legend or not necessarily conspiracy, but whatever world cryptids and whatnot inhabit that legendary and and modern mythos realm, there's always or generally some kind of undercurrent of folksy wisdom to be found. I mean, God knows half of the the realm of trying to find Bigfoot seems to just be conservation. (laughs) There's this implicit kind of (laughs) this creature is something that is to be to be feared but respected that goes into trying to find Bigfoot. And that seems to be true of any cryptid that lives in a near urban forested area or maybe marsh area or whatever the environment happens to be. But, you know, it's these creatures that don't necessarily even have any tie to really old folk myth or popular mythos, I suppose. They might be fairly distinctly modern, but there always seems to be a kind of naturalist undercurrent to it. Right. I think Mothman is a really great example of that. You know, conservation isn't really probably the first word that comes to people's mind. But when you really start digging into the undercurrent of conspiracies there, of of course, you have like the tales of the TNT area and the government weapon storage that happened near Point Pleasant. And there's been people that have theorized, I don't really put much stock in this, but that the Mothman is some sort of government mutant that escaped a lab or is a result of radiation spills or or a chemical spill of some kind. And I, I think in the early 90s, when you had the OG Puerto Rican chubacabra, Uh, as opposed to like the dogs with mange that people call chupacabras in Texas. Similar things were suggested because I think we had, the U.S. had some military bases near some of the areas where it was initially seen. uh, And it was, you know, theorized that it could have been some sort of government experiment. Uh, And even uh, another example I can think of is uh, the Montauk monster that washed up in New York. Uh, which I think turned out to be a raccoon or something, but it was same deal there. It had ties in people's mind that the Montauk project and all sorts of government shadiness. It's what something like the X-Files back in the day tapped into is there was on the one hand, there was a rationality to the horror, at least what the story is about has meaning, even if the story itself is kind of absurd. Maybe not something that was in every single Monster of the Week episode of the X-Files, but something that kind of ran through the series was this healthy distrust for authority, which is always there in conspiracy and can go into wild and sometimes very unhelpful places. But I think there's an earnestness that's there in kind of the first order when the realm of conspiracy comes up. It it kind of makes me wonder, like, in a hundred or so years, what kind of stories are they going to be told that relate to issues in our life? I could imagine there being a time where people tell stories of these giant black oily creatures crawling out from the sea being allegorical to oil spills when digging off reefs because that's a huge ecological issue and you know who knows these stories could take any shape it's fun to pretend you know (laughs) i reckon maybe once you know the inevitable full-scale economic collapse happens and suddenly we go back to being very disconnected peoples we're gonna have a huge renaissance of folk tales and legends and they're going to become you know highly varied and maybe we'll rebuild again and suddenly those stories once again will be taken to be more real and hopefully we would have learned as a species and you know we'll we'll go back to a more conservational mindset you know, the kind that uh, a lot of Aboriginal cultures around the world have is 
they only had the land that they did to survive on. So they had to treat it properly. I'm just going to weigh in and say that in a hundred years, QAnon will be a religion. <laughs> well, I, I was actually just going to say, I mean, there is that argument that conspiracy culture has sort of taken the place of religion to a lot of people as our world becomes more, yeah, material, well, not materialistic in more of like the dialectical materialistic sense, I guess. Uh, and, and there's less blank areas on the map and, and less unknowns. I don't know. I, I think there is a instinct to kind of push back at that because I don't think the reality that everything just is exactly what it appears to be is very comforting. And I think people's religious fervor for conspiracy culture may be acting as a sort of emotional panacea for that, filling some of the holes that have been left by, you know, these myths that we've been talking about and these cautionary tales and uh, this, these moral lessons. I don't know the conspiracy culture. I could, I could go on a whole rant. It, it does make me sad because I, I was always fascinated by it as, as a kid and even as an adult, but it, it's to the point now where you hesitate to even use the word conspiracy because the baby has really been thrown out with the bathwater in that case. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about something semi-legitimate or the earth being flat. A lot of people see it all as one giant bucket, which sucks, but whatever. That's why I can just, focus on music i guess <laughs> <laughs> well i mean dra- dragging it into music there's both the the world in which people have taken music and used it as a way to express horror and there's also the world in which music that has been made has been kind of recontextualized by horrible things happening around it so there's both the kind of very straight and narrow definition of horror and music but there's also this world in which music exists that's not necessarily horrifying by what it was intended to be but has been kind of recontextualized in sometimes very folksy ways into a horror setting i mean a lot of the examples i was thinking of for this episode are kind of the artistic creations of especially cults which have something of a fascination for me most obvious one being the recorded material of manson which is kind of, you know, the big cult to recontextualize a word um, hit with people who kind of look to cults and want to find artistic expression. But it's definitely true of other things. One that really gets me is David Koresh's music, which has this mournful kind of what if AOR was in some way corrupted tone to it. He's got a song called Madman Down in Waco, which is about, the guy that was a rival for leadership of the Branch Davidians. But obviously in the context of what wound up happening in Waco, it's a very, very affecting song, him singing mournfully about this man-man living in Waco. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. So with horror music, I I do want to ask, what has your experience been with the the realms of horror and the realm of music both being such big fascinations for you? Uh, well, you know, I think it, it depends on a person's personal definition of horror. You know, from that pulp and movie slasher perspective, there's obviously a huge glut of that sort of thing. Well, mainly in, in metal, but branching out as well. I mean, we do have satanic doo-wop groups and uh, the like, but <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of their name right now. For me personally, I, I guess because my thoughts on horror are so tied to sensations of the unknown and lack of control and 
the uncanny in particular, for me, most of the horror and music where those two intersect happens to be in the realm of a lot of improvised music in particular, power electronics, free improv, jazz, and more to the uncanny side of things, those unintentional recordings that were maybe intended one way as like an educational tool in particular, but just given the age of it and the out of contextness of it become somewhat creepy. I, I do think age is a big factor there because I think the more distance we get from it and the more foreign some of these records from particularly like the early 60s and 70s sound that haven't been remixed and remastered and do have this crackle and hiss and, and age to it and the, the voice sounds a little off they become much creepier than they may have originally been intended to be uh, and I do have a couple examples of that if we end up going down that road but we'll get there when we get there so yeah for me I, I think I, I definitely appreciate the pulp aspect of horror and metal or metal yeah horror and metal but for me where you really find the most sinister and stuff that makes my skin crawl or, or makes me think about my place in the universe is more a couple of uh, jazz guys high out of their brains just going absolutely nuts in the studio and defying every law of musical convention that we have. I, I think for me that is why horror and music aren't always seen as bedfellows because music in the traditional sense is very regimented and even if there is a lot of experimentation that's still you know, within certain time signatures and there's certain chords to be played. And uh, there are only a, a finite number of notes that you can play in a certain order, I guess. And when that breaks down and starts to decay in these more avant-garde projects is when I, I think it gets closest to being truly horrifying. So I guess that's my general thoughts on it. Yeah, the I, mean, I think the, the, pulp, the pulp horror aspects of metal are kind of what make it such a perfect teenage genre. You can take just about any horror-related story or even vibe, and there's some obscure subgenre or regional scene in the metal world that's taken it and made the the most unsettling or the most fun or the most the most kind of like heart-pumping album. There's kind of, it's it's always out there because the metal world is so vast, and it becomes kind of a it's almost a playground of horror. Like, it can go around and you can just kind of pick and choose and find whatever you want, which I, I guess re-adds back to the pulpy aspect of it is the, the extent to which there's such a, a buffet of experience there. It's not quite exactly the same, but I, I think I search for a similar vibe to what you were talking about with some of the quieter, more abstract vapor projects that have been around for especially about five years ago, five to ten years ago, because you get a lot of projects in the kind of vaporwave and adjacent plundaphonics-esque genres where the specific feeling that's being aimed at is a kind of error that no longer exists. It's very much the kind of maul and decay feel that they're going for, and some of them really hit the note quite well. You have just some albums where the entire point of the album is to make you feel like you're living in a high-rise and it's a lonely night. Um, and you're staring out of a rainy window onto a, you know, a neon abyss and wondering whether or not there's any point going on, or they're trying to get the feeling of a night market that was once really bustling and grand, 
but the stalls have started to wither away over the years and there's not as many people there and it's all starting to fall apart. I I think that's where I kind of find very similar feelings to what you're getting at here. One of the albums that I kind of had listed in my head for if we want to get to it is one where I think the feeling of the album is best described as a club that you're not meant to be in. And there's an extent to which there are just some types of music or just some albums where it's specifically the the element to music that's so evocative that really puts you in a place or puts you in a particular mood. And that's where horror can really be expressed in music is its ability to kind of have that emotional resonance without necessarily needing you to be sitting down reading or watching. You can kind of just be doing something and feeling this kind of emotional resonance with the, with the music that you're listening to. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, I, I think overall, the sense of nostalgia is kind of undervalued for its horrific qualities. I, I think that might have something to do with just all the you know, uh, nostalgia bait culture we have. But I think when you do look at it at a slightly less surface level, and it's not just remember when, but it's trying to invoke a, a more familiar feeling, which I think Vaporwave did a very good job at. It, it does put you kind of at unease at your place in the world. And it definitely makes you aware of your own mortality, I think. And like you said, it, it also has this effect where it's taking you back to a world that doesn't really exist. Um, I, I think you can kind of get a similar experience um, just walking through like a dead mall, particularly one that was like never renovated. We have quite a number of those around me. And uh, I, I think that also ties into what I was saying is that when you have some of these older albums and they're, they're talking about a, a world that no longer exists and technology that's not really around, it becomes foreign yet familiar. And I, I do think that ties back into that sense of the uncanny. And I think overall, these a lot of these retro wave projects, because so many of them borrow from genres that really never intersected in the past uh, in their own time and are also adding this modern flair to it, that it creates this callback to an era that never really existed it's almost like trying to remember a dream, I guess. It has all these familiar elements and you can place some of them, but you never quite get a full picture uh, in your head. And I, I think it's a very powerful experience. And I, I do think music is uniquely suited to creating that because it is more atmospheric and a little less busy. And it's not just you know a character from a version of the movie that came out 30 years ago, making a cameo, you know, it it runs a little bit deeper than that. I I think one example I can think of is there's a particularly sad and morose vaporwave playlist. That's uh, I think the video on YouTube is just called you're in a hotel pool in 1993 and it's 11 PM. I've watched that. I've listened to that exact playlist video. (laughs) Every every time I listen to it, I feel sad as hell. There was something you uh, you said just a little earlier about like you know jazz musicians breaking conventions and um, made me think of one of like the composers that I like respect the most and just adore is John Zorn. He's famous for groups like Naked City, Electric Passata, and Naked City especially had uh, this really uh, well. This is the one I've listened to the most actually. I've listened mostly to Naked City, but, you know, they would have these tracks that were just like blisteringly fast. And you'd think that 
it could not get harder. And then, yeah, it just hard cuts to something really gentle and then back into it again. And there's this dichotomy that almost churns the stomach of what is happening. And it instills this like feeling of, un- of just unease and dread. And then they started collaborating with Japanese musician Yamantaka Ai, who was famous for his group, Hanatarash, which was the Japanese danger music and noise rock group that drove a bulldozer through a venue and caused like $60,000 worth of damages and risked the lives of everybody inside. I lack the vocabulary to describe his screams, but it's like something reaches into your head, grabs onto something primal you didn't know was there, rips it out and shows it to you. And I first came across uh, them watching um, uh, horror film Funny Games, which starts with this relatively nice section of this um, aerial shot of a car and uh, husband and wife inside are playing a game where they put on classical music and the other one has to guess who the composer is. And they do that a couple of times back and forth. And then they're like, okay, I've got a really good one. And then there's just this most aggressive, abrasive sound and screaming and yammering. And it sets up the film perfectly and haunts me still (laughs) to this day. Like, listening to naked i usually not prepared every time i go back to listen to them it's it, it there's just something so primal about it so i like get exactly what you're saying about like breaking musical conventions it's like there's no foundation underneath you anymore for anything and i wish that i could think like that and compose music like that i'm very boring <laughs> I'm very like, you know what, 4 is fine. Yeah, D major, let's go for it. Instead, you know, I, I envy a lot of these musicians that just hear music in a completely different way, in a way that I'll never understand. And I honestly feel a little bit inadequate. <laughs> Every time I go like, oh, I wrote the song and I think it's kind of cool. Then to go and listen to something like, you know, Skull Crusher. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that concept that you brought up yeah it's interesting japan seems to have a cultural tendency to tap into that maybe more than anyone else i can think of on like a cultural level um i don't know if i ever really realized it until or i don't know if i ever really clicked in my head until relatively recently uh when i was putting together a episode or an album list for an episode we're doing on the brutal prog scene of the 1990s and uh, I, i think about five albums in i realized Every single one of these bands is from Japan. And I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Brutal Prog at all. It's kind of a, a, a more 90s version of the, the rock and opposition movement of the 70s, uh, which very similar vibes there. Stuff like Henry Cow and uh, that's like probably the only band I could think of right now off the top of my head. But just so abrasive, so in your face. Uh, there's usually like 15 instruments playing at once. None of them are doing what they're supposed to. And it's just exhausting to listen to. Like you, you want to take a nap after you listen to a brutal prog album. I, I think our brains, you know, humans like patterns. And I think that's why we probably like music. It's probably why we invented it. Uh, and I think to take that away from us, it does create this very strange sensation. And I, I think there's something primitive about it too, because obviously 
music existed before the rules of music existed. You know, the first people that were, you know, banging on a skull or making a drum or, or, or what have you weren't playing in 4-4 time more than likely. One thing I can think of, and I, I guess even calling it an instrument's a bit of a stretch, but there's something very visceral and ancient about hearing like that Aztec death whistle that they recreated. And I, I think some when music gets experimental enough and, and gets far enough away from convention, I think it invokes a, a very similar feeling. And it's just, uh, it's creepy. It's, it's, it's skin tingling or skin crawly. I'm having trouble <laughs> vocalizing it too. Uh, but I guess it's kind of the ma- magical thing about it. And it's kind of what we're talking about is if you could define it and easily put it in a box, then the horrific element of it wouldn't be there because it would no longer be an unknown. It would no longer be this hard to contain chaotic thing. Yeah, I think the the feeling you're describing right now is kind of what I got the first time I listened to Diamante Galas. Because, ah, yeah. you know, I listened to, uh, a couple of years ago, I listened to, you know, The Litanies of Satan for the first time. And when we were doing a radio show, um, one of the albums we covered was Litanies of Satan. Still, like, one of the best albums that I think I've heard in my entire life. But there's just a way in which what she can do with her voice, with that kind of dual mic setup, just defies what you think a voice can do. And there's, you know, there's an element to taking any instrument and having kind of an idea of what that instrument should sound like and being able to make it do things it shouldn't, that, you know, it really gets under your skin. Yeah, and, and just the voice itself as an instrument. I, I didn't throw any on my list because I, in a sense, I thought it was bordering on the offensive. But when you look at enough of these like creepy album lists or horrifying album lists or disturbing album lists, you'll see a lot of like Inuit throat singing and a lot of uh, indigenous cultural music thrown on there. And I, I think particularly with the throat singing, it's, it's the same thing you're talking about. It's, it, to traditional Western ears, it sounds so foreign from what we expect the vocal cords to be able to do that it, it kind of throws us off. I think, uh, honestly, it's not that dissimilar from the sensation some people get around ventriloquists. I think that might be why dummies are one of those tropes that have really lasted throughout time and, and keep coming up in, in horror stories because the whole disembodied voice coming out of a tool like that, it is invokes some sort of primitive fear. Of course, you also have like automatonophobia and the uncanny and the uncanny valley playing in there. But, and I, I guess that goes back to my, what we were all, all talking about is that sensation of nostalgia and age. And again, I think just age is sort of a, uh, underappreciated piece of the horror puzzle. I think Lovecraft was was in particular really good at invoking that. And uh, a, a lot of the people in his original circle, like Howard and, uh, you know, Clark Ashton Smith, and before him, Arthur Mackin too, were really good at describing these temples and cities out of time that shouldn't be there and how horrifying it is to come upon these places that something in you knows this is like pre-man and I mean, obviously, I don't think we've ever experienced that in real life, but I, I do think, you know, some of this throat singing stuff and invoking those creepy feelings of nostalgia are probably the closest we can get to that. And uh, I, I think we often just try to avoid our understanding of time and try to uh, avoid the fact that it's, uh, you know, killing us. Uh, and I, I think uh, when things remind us of that fact 
uh, again, it, it just creates a, a sense of unwell. Unless I guess you've truly accepted the void or you have very strong faith in some sort of afterlife, uh, maybe not so much. But uh, for someone like me who uh, is, doesn't really have that <laughs> much uh, faith in myself figuring things out, I, I don't really like that sense of the unknown and that uh, sense of mortality creeping up on me. Yeah, last night couldn't quite sleep. So I decided, you know what I haven't read yet? I have no mouth and I must scream. So the story very quickly is about supercomputer that was built to uh, kind of run the Cold War for, you know, uh, the sides of the uh, Americans, Russians and China. And eventually it managed to become so uh, highly developed that it just one day developed sentience it connected itself to the other networks and then became this unstoppable machine that ended up killing everyone except for five people that it endlessly tormented because, you know, it, it gives the sense that it doesn't even have its own motivation apart from resentment and hatred for human beings. But one of the things the computer does to torture them was uh, when the story takes place they've been alive in the computer for 109 years which is an uh, excruciating amount of time to live i'm sure but then at the end uh the computer starts seriously uh extending and distorting and completely varying time scales and you know the the main character that's telling the story uh, at one point says, I will say the word now. Now. I think that took me 10 months. And that must just be like the worst feeling to have like an awareness and also an inability to do something for such a long period of time that that exactly plays into what you were talking about with, uh, you know, scopes of time and existing beyond uh, our very linear, very structured experience of time. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you kind of just uh, hit on the Thomas Ligotti version of horror, which I know many, many people do not agree with, but he, he would say that is the ultimate joke or to put it as he did the conspiracy against the human race is that we are stuck in this place where we are aware of our surroundings but we can't do anything about it at the end of the day we really don't have any control over it uh, it, it is all one great unknown we can think we have things figured out but I, I mean as anyone that follows science even from a, a pop science perspective knows that it's science is this amorphous unchanging thing it, it's not really this you know it's not a religious doctrine it, it's not a, a set standard of rules like I think a lot of people think it is uh, it, it is constantly adapting and changing and, and that goes across the sciences whether it's paleontology or archaeology or you know astrophysics and it, it's funny I, I think you probably saw it on Facebook I made the the joke uh, not that long ago that it seems like theoretical physicist's main job is ripping off 80-year-old issues of weird tales, uh, possible explanations <laughs> for the, uh, the universe. But uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of true. And it's, it's, 
It's interesting. I think that a lot of people think that the notion of forbidden knowledge or truths we shouldn't know or opening doors that we shouldn't, they, they, they see it as kind of uh, primitive and outdated and a, a relic of the 1920s and 30s and, uh, you know, that pulp era of horror. But I don't think that's the case. I mean, when you when you really look at the fringes of these scientific articles, and particularly when it talks about, like, you know, discovering alien intelligence or the, the, the matrix theory or the idea that we're just some petri dish you know uh, and, and these are you know legitimate scientists they're not wackadoos on youtube spouting this stuff and uh i mean it, it, it's getting to the point where the more we understand about the universe the more it seems to be that well horror was right <laughs> and uh I, I think if humans survive long enough i i do think we're going to approach that point where we do learn that ultimate unpleasant truth uh, about things. Uh, and I, I do think there is a door somewhere out there that shouldn't be opened and, and whatever form that takes. Uh, I, well, I don't even really know if we're going to be around long enough to open it. Maybe we'd be better off not, but I, I definitely think there's still mysteries out there and I, I don't think they're the, the fun kind of mystery. Just to take a step back a little bit, that matter of, of time is something that I find music is incredibly good at distorting. Because you get so many albums that feel longer or shorter than they are. You feel like you either have missing time or you've done too much in a short amount of time. You know, there are plenty of albums out there that, you know, they, they feel like they run on a little bit too long and you feel like you've been listening to something for an hour and 10 minutes, but it's actually only been 35 or 40. And conversely, you can get albums that get the right sense of speed or have the right sense of when to cut something and when to put a certain track that they might be a 45 minute long album but feel like they go past in 15 minutes and I think music is uniquely positioned to be able to give you that sense of time distortion in a way that maybe other mediums of art aren't quite I know you get films that might feel too long or feel too short so it's not you know absolutely unique but music seems to be able to do it really well and, you know, the number of albums I've listened to where I get that sense of time being a little bit off is, you know, probably a fairly significant proportion of the music I've listened to full stop. And, you know, at this point, I listen to music daily and, you know, I'll discover new albums, you know, a number of times a week. So it's not like something that happens every so often. It's something I'm doing all the time. And that sense of, you know, time being a little bit off as a result is something that's therefore happening all the time for me. I, I'm in the same position. I, you know, I have an office job, so I'm listening to music eight hours a day, every day almost. And uh, it's interesting how different time flows when you're listening to, to albums versus podcasts. And uh, I guess uh, just to piggyback on that, I know we're not really talking about individual albums yet, but um, maybe the ultimate example of that, do you guys want to talk about, uh, didn't one of you have the caretaker I did. I was about to talk to you about that as well. I'm so excited. Oh, hell I yeah. feel like that might be a good natural flow and point to start talking about albums. Um, go on, Zach. Sorry. Oh, well, I, I actually have not listened to it yet, but I, I've read people's reactions to it. Um, and I just, uh, because I listen to so much music for my hobby, it's hard for me to commit the six hours it requires. Um, and also I, I feel like working in a job where I have to 
answer people's questions and take phone calls would probably ruin it a little bit. So I haven't actually had the experience to listen to it yet. So I, I was curious to hear your guys' take on it because it's a, a record that really fascinates me just based on what I've heard people say and the apparent emotional devastation they feel from listening to the whole thing. I haven't listened to it, so I'll get my take oh. in nice and short before Andy has a chance to actually tell us what it's like. But I, I just... I feel like this is sort of album that listening to it an office job would make you want to kill yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I've listened to it. I've listened to it. Uh, I once listened to it twice in one day. I bought the. I I bought it off uh, Bandcamp, and thought like you know there is never going to be a better time for me to sit down and listen to this thing than right now. And I listened to it the whole way through. And what it does to one's sense of time is actually bizarre. It did not feel like it was six and a half hours, but I felt like I'd aged a couple of years. You know, the, the album is, is kind of spread over six, five, six, some number of stages, which each represent a different stage of neurodegenerative disorder like alzheimer's or dementia and you know the early stages it's uh the 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 caretaker uh leland kirby is um incredibly good at taking these old recordings that uh a lot of the samples were taken from like old uh records and phonographs but also wax cylinders we're going way back to like when Edison was building, you know, a machine to record sounds. And the, in, the, in the very first stage, it's got this beautiful like warmth that uh, it goes exactly back into that uh, feeling nostalgic for things that don't exist. You know, I was not alive when all this music was coming out. None of us were. But there is this like sense of nostalgia that's, instilled by his treatment of the audio of you know using degraded magnetic tapes and as the you know stages progress the first three are you know they they follow that kind of classic uh the, the very first track on it is just a burning memory is kind of the track that everybody associates the whole thing with the first three are kind of like that but they get progressively sadder and there are like by the time you get to the third stage you get these hard cuts and distortions of the of of little fragments of memories that you get this there's a there's a frustration that kind of builds uh that very much akin to the frustration that you know people who are suffering from these these illnesses get when they're struggling to remember things and then stage four starts, which is the beginning of uh, what's called the post-awareness stage. That's where things kind of get, with regards to time, fucky. You can hear, like, it's, it's so hard to describe just exactly what it sounds like. But it's, you know, there are, like, echoes for sounds that haven't started yet. But it's but it isn't the same so much as like uh, that 
like you know building up and swelling it's it it sounds like linearly it's sh- it, it's going forwards but it, the echoes proceed it's i'm i really struggle i think to describe exactly what it does and how it does it and that's also frustrating but then you know as those stages get on and these drones become physically heavy Uh, i've never been aware of a sound having weight but it's there and it's inescapable and then at the very end and in the very last like minute of the six and a half hour monolith is representation of probably one of the most terrifying things with these kinds of illnesses which is um terminal lucidity where suddenly the sufferer seems to be fine. They're, you know, able to recall things, unlike the, they have been in the past. They're, they show that they're cognizant of themselves, their surroundings, the people that are there. And it's almost like uh, there is no, uh, you know, accepted theory as to why this happens, but it's seen very, very frequently. And that's the like you someone might uh, mistake that for someone getting better, um, but it, that's just the like kind of last little moment before, sadly, the person dies. And you know, my my granny uh, lives in Australia. She's got Alzheimer's, and over the years, we've seen her go from you know still living at home, but you know, having a conversation and she'll just forget that she's already asked something. There was a like middle stage where, um, you know, she had to go and live in a home. She wasn't able to live in her own. And um, she loves like music DVDs. So we put those on for her. So she's entertained through the day. And, you know, she, she would say bizarre things like, oh, that man that lives in the television has been here for quite some time to now where she's um, listening to it just like brings up a lot of those feelings that I have about my own granny and you know knowing that like this is a part of life and this is it it doesn't happen to everyone but uh, when it starts it doesn't stop and uh, I got to the end of it and it was so bizarre that just like this little part at the end that represents that terminal lucidity is, you know, it, it gives, it gave me the feeling that I imagine, you know, the sufferer has in that moment as well of like, oh, positivity, everything's actually going to be okay. And then it ends. And emotionally, I don't, it's, out of this world just like how it does what it does and that it can do it and so naturally i got to the end of that six and a half hours and thought i'll listen to that again that's a very you thing to do it is, <laughs> it is. no that was uh even just like going back and talking about it again it's like reliving some of those feelings uh, which i've never actually articulated them to somebody else it it really uh, these things this intangible like 
you know, the memory of it is physically heavy. And it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's black magic. It's witchcraft and it shouldn't exist, but it does. It's, yeah, it's, it's Lovecraftian and it's, uh, I'm going to let Zach take the initial response to that because I need to gather my thoughts. I'm I'm really (laughs) sorry. I've just like. No, it's all right. I think, uh, I think it's a really great example of how music is both the best and maybe worst um, medium to invoke this kind of emotional response, because I think, you know, you watch a movie and it's like, Oh, that's sad. Or, Oh, that's tragic. And, you know, you may tear up. It may emotionally resonate with you, but it doesn't have that altered states effect. Uh, that I, I think music can create uh, with the exception of maybe something that is extremely heavily reliant on, on, on visuals like uh, uh, oh God, beyond the black rainbow or something like that or altered states itself, I guess. Yeah. Uh, to go back to the album itself, it's one of the reasons, other reasons I've been somewhat hesitant to listen to it is because my own grandfather who passed away uh, also had dementia. Um, he did not have Alzheimer's. Um, the, best way I could put it is that his brain was slowly suffocating to death uh, because of damage to his lungs. And it was really horrifying. Um, He basically had a stroke about uh, a month after he retired uh, and lost his ability to talk. And he just kept having a series of strokes uh, over the next two decades of his life. And uh, his lungs kept getting worse and worse and dementia started setting in uh, because of well, brain death, really. And he was suicidal for most of it because unfortunately the really kind of cruel irony of it is he spent almost all of it in that lucid state where he was, he couldn't remember things, but he was aware of the fact that he couldn't remember things. Like, I I think when he was thinking of stuff, he could physically kind of see that black wall where a memory should have been or that black hole, I guess. Uh, And he would get extremely frustrated because he he knew the information should be there, but it wasn't. And eventually just, he basically just suffocated to death. Um, And he did, it was very strange because he died in a very horrific way. Um, But, uh, you know, when he was gone he had this look of like overwhelming peace and serenity uh like it finally been granted to him um and it's uh i I don't know it's one of the reasons i've been so hesitant to listen to the album because dementia is such a a deeply uh, emotionally affecting experience once you've gone through it and uh i I, the the whole terminal lucidity thing is is such a it's so horrifying that it, it makes you almost have to believe in some sort of cruel God uh, with some sick sense of humor because it, why, you know, and, and, and the fact that we still haven't come up with any kind of explanation as to, to why that happens. It, it, it's just like the sickest sense of irony. I, I guess, you know, it is that Lovecraftian quote from even the greatest of horrors. Irony is seldom absent. Um, I, I don't know if anything more true has ever been said. There is uh, one more thing about it that now that I've had a little breather and collected my thoughts again, one of the criticisms of it is especially because the uh, stages were released staggered. It wasn't all in one go. One of the criticisms, especially during the early times was that people were saying that this was a very romantic depiction, which I've not seen that being said after the entire thing's been released. There is 
nothing about it that is romantic. It's a cruel and harsh reality. But I feel as well that having listened to it, I definitely empathize a lot more in um and I feel like I can understand and relate to somebody who's actually going through with it and that it has given me a little bit of comfort with thinking about uh, my own granny and um, it removed a little bit of that unknown of that we don't know what's going to happen or how quickly things are going to progress or how slowly it's definitely made me feel a little more comfortable thinking about yeah it's going to happen it's sad that it has to happen but i feel more equipped to deal with it when it eventually will that's one that i think almost never gets talked about which is horror as a therapeutic that is definitely not the first thing that comes to mind (laughs) when i think anyone thinks of horror yeah it is there that ability to have if not understanding and acceptance horror if you really you know lean into it can give you is you know it's a very useful thing to have in life I mean, I've been hesitant to listen to The Caretaker for very similar reasons. My grandfather passed away from Alzheimer's some years ago now, and my great-grandmother passed away from dementia terribly long after that. Of the two, Alzheimer's seemed considerably worse because he held on for just way too long. But the the dementia, I wasn't there when um, my great-grandmother passed away. But again, she did have that moment of lucidity right at the end it wasn't fully oh she's back to normal but she remembered names and could place faces much better than she had been able to for months at that point right before she went but as much as that is a cruel irony I also think you know it was something that gave people in the room a bit more closure knowing that she was still more or less the same person right at the end and hadn't quite dipped into being someone else which I think is the thing that's that's really terrifying about those brain degenerative diseases is the the loss of recognition of self and the complete loss of someone while they're still around rather than just losing them. It kind of draws out the process. I can't think of another album. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like we kind of opened up with the worst one to try and follow it with something else. Yeah. I got, I got uh, a good transition when you're ready. Ah, go for it then. Going back to the very beginning, uh, it's kind of a complete change of pace, but you had mentioned like the, uh, the, the wax cylinders and the sampling. And I, I do think it's uh, worth talking about the effects and the uh, found sound and tape music and distortion in music. A great example I can think of, not to bring him up for the fourth time, but um, the Thomas Ligotti Current 93 collaboration. Uh, I have a special plan for this world. Love that um, There's album. this, yes, there's that effect used uh, where after every verse is read, then they basically pull on this speak and spell that is on its last legs. And it makes this horrifying imitation of speech before the next verse kicks in. That's a really great example. The uh, album in particular I was going to bring up, it's actually a a box set just because of the the sheer size of it, but it is called The Conet Project. Uh, It's recordings of shortwave number stations. Have you guys, are you guys familiar with that at all? Yes. Yes. uh, Man, I think we did talk about this maybe in like the very first episode of this podcast that we've done, but nothing in the world scares me more than number stations. (laughs) It's utterly terrifying, <laughs> and I have no idea why. I just can't sleep 
I don't want to go outside whenever I like remember that they exist and go and listen to them, which I keep doing because I hate myself, I guess. <laughs> it's my form of masochism. Yeah, well, I guess just a, a brief sum- summation for anybody that's out there. Number stations are these things. I don't really know what else to call them that exist on shortwave radios. Uh, and no one really knows what they are or why they exist, who's making them or where they come from. Uh, the closest explanation I think that is out there is that they're codes for um, spycraft and that you know, if you don't know, it's because you're not supposed to, uh, and the messages are for certain people, but it's not a altogether satisfying explanation because there are these, despite the name of number stations, there are these stations out there that just play the same clip of music over and over again. Um, I think one of the more horrifying explanations I've heard is particularly there's one in Russia where uh, the idea or the theory is that it's basically this old cold war station and it's essentially a dead man switch and if the number station never goes off the nukes go which is absolutely horrifying to think about that some shortwave radio transmitter out in the middle of uh, siberia uh, is all that's preventing a nuclear holocaust but yeah i think number stations in general they they just they inhabit this weird place of the familiar and the strange and there is no good explanation for it and I mean, even the the most black and white materialistic explanation that it is just secret codes for spies. I mean, that's a horrifying world in and of itself. It's a very human horror, like as we've discussed before, but horror nonetheless. Uh, and the album itself, the, the Conet Project, um, I, I think it's like much like The Caretaker. I think it's six, seven hours long. And it's just a collection of, of all these different um, number station recordings. Uh, it's just an example of found sound. I guess you could call it field recordings as well. But yeah, if you just want to absolutely terrify yourself, <laughs> just look up number stations, play a little bit of that album. And uh, yeah, you, you won't be able to sleep either. And I, I do think shortwave in and of itself and just the quality of the recordings, because it does, like we've mentioned, sound so aged and distorted. The sound of it itself is is just creepy uh, and very much sounds like a ghost coming out of an old radio or something like that. Yeah, if you ever check out like really old Alex Jones recordings from when he was on um, local radio in the late 90s, the quality of the recording just gives it this like ambiance of some fucking weirdo stretching their hand through time to grab you by the ear and yell at you. Yeah, um... something about local radio that's more than about 15 to 20 years old. The recording quality just gives it this ghostly feeling. I'm, the similar thing with, uh, oh God, I can't think of his name right now. There was a guy that is basically seen as the predecessor of Alex Jones. His name is Bill something. Bill um, Yes, thank you. He was originally involved in like the UFO scene really heavy uh, and was basically a stooge for John Lear, but that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> and yeah, the same deal there when you listen to his uh, old radio shows now, it has that same quality. And I, again, there is sort of a very human horror there just in the sense that the world seems overly populated with bill coopers now the charm has been completely removed he's, he's no longer just some psycho living in the desert he's your neighbor which is a pretty awful thing to deal with but uh, it is what it is to move on to the the next album because it's a somewhat neat segue that feeling of paranoia in music is one that really grips me and i really enjoy 
I find a lot of synth music is really good at that, like the kind of modern synth revival and synth wave stuff. I had almost been saving this one for an episode in and of itself, but I think so I'll just give the disclaimer now that if we talk about an, uh, an album in this episode, that doesn't mean that we won't come back to it if we feel like it at some other time, just in case there's someone out there listening like, damn, I was hoping to hear more than a sentence about that. But the dark synth artist filmmaker who has produced uh, a number of works over the last few years he's got quite the release schedule uh, he's a colombian guy but he has one album called the love market from 2019 and that's the album i was referring to earlier where the entire feel of the album is that you're somewhere you shouldn't be i've seen it described as being the sensation you get when you realize you shouldn't have walked into this club and just that sense of paranoia that it manages to get across is very potent. The entire album is just is just oozing with this sense of menace and this, I don't know, it's got like a paranoid urge to it. But music is definitely one of those mediums that's really great at getting across a feeling of paranoia or something that shouldn't be or being somewhere you shouldn't. I agree, but I don't really know if I have anything else to add. <laughs> i don't know if you've have I made you listen to the love market andy nah nah you haven't i'm surprised you usually make me listen to the it's exactly the kind of thing that you'd show me one day yeah i i've listened to some of this guy's other stuff he released an album called vlad tapes you know vlad tepish but it's it's vlad tapes and oh. released it on cassette earlier this year which is like a i think two and a half hour long album of just like Vlad the Impaler inspired synth, which <laughs> I listened to it. It's it's an interesting album, but it's a, it's definitely a weird one. There's definitely just something to synthwave generally and its kind of derivatives and spin-off genres that really focuses and or sorry, zeroes in on the sensation of of, of kind of a conspiracy being in the works an album that we covered or that I covered actually on the show before Andy even came on Carpenter Brute's Leather Teeth, which is a, a kind of one of those soundtracks to a movie that doesn't exist albums. It's a very kind of the, the story behind the album has kind of got this uh, rock exploitation slasher vibe going on, but it has this distinct sense of conspiracy in the works running throughout and the same is true for the other album that we covered, the other synthwave album we covered on the show, I Am The Night by Perturbator. Again, that one had this very network, it, has, it actually quotes from Network earlier, early in the album, but it's very good at getting across a sense that something's happening that's not good, but you're not quite aware of it. You know, there's something that's being hidden. And I just generally find that Synthwave is very good at evoking that kind of paranoid urge. Yeah, I, I think to, to take that even a, a step further is uh, electronic music as a whole, uh, I think is, is uniquely capable of creating that sense of uh, not belonging. I, I think just because by definition, it's artificial. A, a lot of the albums I had on my master list and also a lot of stuff that I have on list for various things we're going to do on shuffle repeat down the line a lot of the early new age stuff and uh, progressive electronic, any, any early electronic stuff. Like uh, I'm thinking of like the electric Lucifer by Bruce hack, which is not really a 
sinister album despite the title but because all of it is all the vocals with some sparse exceptions are artificially created on a very primitive very very early 60s vocoder uh it, it has this very skin crawly uh feel uh because it's that weird imitation of speech and it, you know it, it gets back into that whole point that we keep looping around to of that uncanniness but uh, I mean, that's one of the reasons I love electronic music. It's it's one of the reasons I love synthesizers so much. And I, I love hearing those uh, crappy Casio keyboards in my black metal that uh, a lot of people hate. <laughs> I, I think it adds a, a very uh, an inhuman element to it. And uh, same reason I like drum machines. Uh, I, know, I know a lot of people, especially music fans, are furious if they hear a drum machine. But uh, I, I love them. Um, sometimes I honestly prefer it. Uh, just because it is that just machine generated music, even if a human programmed it all the same, it has that just artificialness to it that uh, you can't get with a human being. Uh, but I think while maybe not great for everything is, is definitely uh, good for what we're talking about today. The Mellotron as well. Uh, yeah. That was the oh, theremin, keyboard. of course. The, the Mellotron's amazing. It's a keyboard instrument, like a synthesizer, but it uses tape loops right of synthesized instruments and voices it it's not nearly as popular as it once was but part of it being that it was synthesized sounds but played through a tape loop which kind of warms it all up the mellotron i feel has a very uncanny valley sound there's a particular sense that you specifically get with like a anything that's recorded on on magnetic tape. I had, this is years ago when I was in high school, I had this uh, cassette player that I took out to some field trip we were doing. This is in my last year of high school. And it must've been like athletics day or something, but I had these cassettes and this cassette player with me. And it was a stinking hot day with the sun beating down. Of course, that's not good for cassettes. And I had a copy of... um, it's a kind of magic by Queen and one of David Bowie's early eighty record, early eighties records, and the sun just fucked them up. They're all warped, and the sounds that it then produced was more interesting than the albums themselves. There's something about what you can do with anything recorded on magnetic tape. The same is true for VHSs. Something specific about what you can do when you stretch it, or when it gets struck down a little bit, or when the tape gets scratched in some way, the deformations to the music that, that occur as a result of that, usually much more interesting than what was intended to be recorded anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And I mean, you see kind of uh, modern attempts to, to replicate that sensation with, I, I guess maybe the earliest example of that digitally would be chopped and screwed remixes, uh, it was long, as well as like glitch as a genre. Although glitch doesn't, tend to be spooky all that often from what I've heard, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I, I think there's something to that that analog recording equipment with tapes and, and VHS. And I, I guess in a, in a broader sense, I think maybe the reason it invokes these feelings is that I think humans have this almost instinctual fascination with like rot and decay. I, I think, uh, and it, sometimes it's even, I think, somewhat masochistic urge. For instance, I'm in a lot of uh, urban exploring groups or just groups dedicated to like abandoned buildings because uh, I am one of those people. Uh, it just fascinates me. I, I, I love seeing that just 
crumbling structure, particularly modern stuff, uh, just fascinates me. Um, and there are people who on almost every single photo that gets posted is just like, are just like, this makes me sad. And, but they do it on every post. And it, it's like, why are you in this group then <laughs> if this is just making you feel awful? I think that's really they're kind of indirectly hitting on what we're talking about. It's this very bizarre mix of familiarity with uh, a fascination with death and decay um, mixed with this like masochism uh, and desire to explore more. And I I guess it probably ties into that, uh, what you touched on earlier with horror being uh, sort of therapeutic in a multitude of ways. Uh, For me, I mean, horror, particularly of the cosmic variety and the stuff I read it, it's almost like reading a hymnal, I guess. It reaffirms a lot of uh, my black-pilled ideas about the world. (laughs) Um, And so it's comforting to me. But uh, I know a lot of people particularly people who like horror movies, uh, a lot of it is a trauma response. Uh, A lot of those people that are are fans of it, and you may not think of it, did suffer from, you know, sexual violence or um, had some sort of traumatic event happen to them. And and those films are a a way for them to to deal with it and uh, move past it. Um, You you see a similar thing in the true crime communities that are out there today, which uh, I have mixed feelings about the current state of true crime. But um, uh, yeah, I I think horror is a a multifaceted tool uh, for psychological betterment. I I think it's, uh, yeah, it's not just jump scares. I think that might be one of the reasons people are so angry about the presence of jump scares, because uh, it it removes all that uh, more deeper level of horror. Uh, from the equation. And I, I think it's why it doesn't really have the same impact as, you know, any of those like old Gothic ghost stories or anything from the pulp era uh, or, you know, modern uh, weird fiction uh, just doesn't have the same bite to me anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I was, a uh, again, going back to when I was a teenager, I was very much a kind of like, ah, oh, it's just jump scares and it's not even really horror. And that was in part because my introduction to horror had been buying a copy of Psycho, like a, some legacy edition of it when I was, Uh, 14 maybe and watching that and kind of first getting that inclination that ah there's more to this you know that there's some depth to this this whole horror thing that I didn't really realize before so I I think it's kind of natural to have that gut reaction if you see something that you take to have quite a bit of depth and meaning and see it get cheapened in some way right I I do think there is some value to just boo horror you know uh, I, I do enjoy like walking through haunted attractions and, and getting scared and I'm actually kind of sad because when I was younger I am an extremely jittery and jumpy person and jump scares would get to me and I, I would jump out of my seat and almost piss myself <laughs> and it, it took a, a long long time but I, I feel like I'm finally so numb to it that I just can't appreciate it anymore really really hit home watching the third conjuring movie <laughs> with my wife it was just like oh god this just is not doing it for me anymore and uh i, I kind of miss it but um yeah I, I think uh as fun as that can be it, it, it lacks the the visceralness of uh deeper levels of horror i guess yeah i kind of miss that like earliest stage kind of for everything like oh i wish that like the music that made me cry was the normal stuff that people cry to and said it for me it's like <laughs> stuff that's horrifically depressing or i know what you mean because uh i am an emotionally broken person and uh, i, I kind of have a uh, the issue where 
I, I can watch the saddest movie in the world and it doesn't really affect me. But uh, I'll, if I drop a can of Diet Coke, I'm crying. <laughs> I yeah, just, that's uh, it. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's uh, I, I don't have a very normal emotional response, and you know I'll read these horrible things and be like, "Yes, this is this is good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this this affirms everything I believe about the world." But yeah, if the store is out of the ice cream I wanted, look out. <laughs> or, <laughs> uh, in, in particular, one of the weirdest things for me is uh, I can watch. You know, I, I watched Traces of Death when I was like twelve. Jesus Christ! Before, yeah, before we were recording, um, I was you know I, I had a subscription to documenting reality that I convinced my mom to buy for me as a, wow. as a preteen. So that stuff just doesn't affect me on, on any sort of level. Um, I can watch anything happen to people, but if a stuffed animal is damaged in a movie, I am like a bawling wreck. Uh, it's very bizarre and I don't know why my brain works that way, but, uh, it, it is what it is. So I, I, I feel you. I, I wish my brain processed emotional stimuli the correct way, but it doesn't. You know, what's kind of funny is that, uh, when I was younger, I used to be able to watch like anything happen to anyone. And I was just kind of like, eh. but now as an adult, it's like, I hate seeing people fall over watching those, like, um, you know, I don't think like America's Funniest Home Videos is still a thing anymore, but ridiculousness when it's just people getting hurt, there's something that just upsets me about that, especially, but then also I'll like see a crime scene photo and then like sit there analyzing its composition or like the color balance being off, which is getting really mad at the crime scene photographer for not having like a really good eye. Yeah. It's like, oh, really? You're using that filter? (laughs) um sort out your aperture please but yeah no it's i feel like you know a lot of the stuff that i listen to musically i um can't recommend it to people because i feel like i might break them and it's (laughs) hard finding other people that uh, have an appreciation for the things that i do it's like you got to kind of find them already you can't introduce it i'm really into swans and I absolutely adored their like earliest stuff, uh, you know, just as much as any other point in their career. But their early stuff was just so viscerally aggressive. And they've got like lyrics that are just like, if a normal person heard this, they'd be incredibly upset right now. And I'm just sitting there in my room like, fist pumping and like yeah i'm getting ready to go outside for the first time in three weeks <sighs> watch out yeah it's, it's strange um you know i as i kind of implied I, I got exposed to real violence on film probably way too early <laughs> and I, I didn't really process it right so I was legitimately, I did not understand why people were upset with me when I would send them beheading videos um, <laughs> just out of the blue in Facebook Messenger. <laughs> I have a, I had, the only difference is now you use TikTok to do that. <laughs> right. Yeah. And now it's to just like 12 year old girls. Yeah. Or that Ronnie McNutt guy. Oh, uh, yeah. Did you see that one? The shotgun I, guy? Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, was that was a really sad one. Yes. Yes. Like, just the story about it's way sadder for me than like having seen it because that's like you know i relate a lot to you know mental illness and as yeah it's it's really strange that that's the part for it that i 
knowing that somebody else is struggling is uh, harder than watching them die. Ugh. Maybe that's like part of the reason was getting into that kind of stuff early. I think it definitely desensitizes you in a way and it, it prevents you from developing like normal reactions to those things. And it, it's hard to, it's, it's a horrible thing to say, but it, it is what it is. It, it becomes difficult. I think when you're one of those gore kids to separate real life horror from entertainment and it's it's something I, I've kind of had to force myself to do as I've gotten older and had friends <laughs> and discussions with more normal people and realizing like, okay, you know, maybe think about the gravity of this cartel video you're watching right now. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm trying, but I, I, I do think there was just I, a little too much, a little too soon. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ever going to permanently like fix my brain with that kind of thing, but uh, Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the places where music is uh, kind of acts as a palliative because for every Gorehound kid out there, there are albums for them or there are movies for them. There's, you know, something to scratch that itch that's not necessarily as bad as, you know, watching band on TV. One of the albums that I did have that's kind of along those lines is Church of Miseries and then there were none. Um, Church of Misery really interesting to me because in terms of, the the focus of the band the kind of lyrical themes they're essentially japanese macabre but musically very bluesy stoner metal getting into kind of sludgy territory from time to time i think i've played some church of misery for you andy but yeah we were going to when we did the episode on macabre we were going to do both that's right we're going to do the slaughter and we're going to do their first album master brutality that's it yeah but, you know, the, the focus of the band being that every single song, much like Macabre, is, is inspired by a real-life murderer or a real-life serial killer. There's kind of a way that music like that kind of scratches an itch if you have a predilection towards, you know, kind of the darker elements of humanity, especially if you're a teenager, where it does so in a way that's, you know, a bit healthier, a bit more, a bit more artistic, something that's just kind of more acceptable, a more acceptable way to go about things. Yeah. Although I guess it depends who you ask, because I know there are some people that just will not hear it as far as like old school death metal goes or gore grind. Although I, I have a little, I think they have a little bit more of a leg to stand on with some of that gore grind stuff. But yeah, I, I agree. Uh, it, it's a nice outlet for, for that. I mean, that's how I got into heavy metal really, or extreme metal at least, is uh, I had a book called the A to Z Encyclopedia of Serial Killers. Um, and under S, there was a section for songs. Um, and uh, Dead Skin Mask was listed there among a couple other ones. Probably Church of Misery. I know that's how I found out about Macabre. And uh, yeah, well, it's uh, been a ride since there. <laughs> but it is interesting on that note. Uh, I, I think Church of Misery has aged a lot better than a, a lot of those bands for kind of the reason you mentioned, which is they don't play a style of music that you associate with serial killers. You know, when Dragged into Sunlight uses serial killer samples, it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Bluesy stoner rock, it doesn't really uh, fit as well. Uh, and it kind of creates that contrast and uh, dichotomy that we were talking about earlier uh, that I, I think they still are a little bit more effective uh, than a, a lot of more modern bands that um, focus on the serial killing element. Um, I also think the, the problem there is uh, at the end of the day, there's a finite amount of serial killers and there's a finite amount of uh, samples to use. And 
you know, I, I'm kind of at the point now where if I hear that Charles Manson quote about if I started killing people, there'd be nobody left. I, I just roll my eyes because I've heard it in so many songs. Uh, although there was a, a recent um, Funeral Doom album we talked about on the show uh, that, uh, or a Sludge album on the show, my apologies, uh, that isolated the there'd be no one left part and like ran it through a bunch of effect filters. And it did actually manage to creep me out again, which was cool. But I do think that's one of the problems that music has with uh, creating a sense of horror, particularly metal, is that when something becomes codified, no matter how weird it is, there's always imitators, particularly if it's something that's very popular. And I think the more it's repeated and it becomes more formulaic, uh, the less evocative it is and, and, and less shocking. I think a really great example of that is the whole dissonant death metal scene that's uh, going on right now. I mean, dissonance, dissonance is incredibly effective at creating horror, but when every single day you log onto a death metal group and there's four new cavernous dissonant death metal albums or a, a dissonant black metal album being released, it just, uh, it gets a little samey and that uh, creepy effect that it may have originally had, like the first time you hear Despello Mega or, or something along those lines is, is, is kind of robbed. Uh, and it's still cool. Uh, and I, I, I can appreciate it from a, a, a musical sense or a, hey, that's pretty neat sort of way. But from a, um, is this horrific standpoint, I, I think it's been stripped of that uh, through repetition. I feel the same way about a lot of brutal death where you know, the first time you listen to it, it's very affecting, but at some point it's just kind of like, I get it, you listen to Mortician. Right. And, <laughs> you know, there's only so much that you can really do to to develop on the origin point there. Yeah, and I honestly, I'm, I, I'm, I always hesitate to, like, point to the biggest, best name uh, when it comes to music. I'm very much a, a guy that reads for the underdog and looks at a little engine that could. Uh, but with Brutal Death Metal, I really do think Mortician... <laughs> um, kind of is maybe the pinnacle of that particular line of brutal death. Um, for me personally, I think the drum machine actually helps a lot there because it does, I don't know, there's something so primitive and like uh, basic about mortician that makes it so much more effective than technical, technical bands that do the same thing. Uh, it also helps that Will, Will Raymer is a, a legitimate horror nerd and has this huge wealth of, samples from very obscure films as opposed to you know just sampling evil dead i think that's the thing that works for macabre is their genuine gut level dedication to the topic of murder like i listened to their most recent album the carnival of killers or something like that and it still sounds relatively fresh at least to my ears i mean they also have the they have this completely unique sound that I don't think anyone else has ever really replicated with the dueling death metal and whatever the bizarre screech that corporate death is able to pull off is that, you know, makes them stand out apart from uh, away from the crowd. But they've been able yeah. to make this career of talking about nothing but serial killers for, at this point, something like 35 years, in part because they just have this completely genuine, encyclopedic, earnest knowledge of the the topic at hand yeah and speaking of macabre i mean musically i think uh again they've been around forever um they were one of the first death metal bands ever really i think they formed right around the same time as the uh, death's first demos were coming out under the uh oh God, what was their original name uh, i can't remember right now uh and possessed is possessed seven churches was coming out and uh 
uh, Killjoy's band. Oh God, I really can't remember anything today. <laughs> the other first death metal band. But anyway, uh, I, I don't feel like they ever code like they were around before the sound of death metal was codified, particularly the death growl. Uh, mm-hmm. And most of those bands that were trying to figure out how to make death metal back then have disappeared uh, or they never really made it to begin with. Um, but they stuck around. And because of that, they do still sound remarkably fresh from a musical sense. The, the thing about Macabre, and I think we actually talked about this way back when I think the first episode of Are You Morbid, maybe the second. One thing I think that really helps them stand out is despite the fact that they are, for lack of a better word, a gimmick band, Um, And they're dedicated to a subject that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. It feels so genuine and informative. And particularly I'm thinking of like the Dahmer concept record. And when you hear Macabre, they they have this ridiculous sound to them. But at the same time, when you listen to that Dahmer album, it never really dips into a, a realm where you feel like they're taking advantage of the victims or being exploitative. It, it's, it's very sincere um, and offers a lot of interesting perspective, uh, way more than you'd expect an album with a uh, Jeffrey Dahmer Jingle Bells parody to be. <laughs> and honestly, I mean, I find anything Macabre is doing way less offensive and disgusting than some of these like theater nerd true crime podcasts that you don't want to talk about a heckin' awesome murderino. <laughs> I just, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, it's to, to me, that's far more disgusting and exploitative uh, than, you know, singing a song about dog guts. Yeah. I mean, the one that came to mind for me was that goddamn Jeffrey Dahmer and the chocolate factory song. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I, I really see your point with that. I only listened to Dharma for the first time, I think maybe last year. And there's something about the way they treat every single aspect of Dharma's life in that album, right down to having songs about like the time he was in the army and, you know, an entire section of the album that really that's dedicated to his time living with his grandmother that it gets across that they actually care about the detail of the topic, which, you know, saying that Macabre really care is, is a strange thing to have come out of my mouth. But I, I think you can, you can detect the earnestness with which they think the topic is important. Yeah. You can tell that they've actually, you know, read books, looked at case files. And I'm, I'm pretty sure if I remember their appearance in serial killer culture um, have bought murderbilia. And it's, uh, it comes across far more genuine than someone who's paraphrasing the Wikipedia article about Ted Bundy. Yeah, I think that's it. It's the, it's the, yeah, it, it is that dedication rather than kind of lazily skimming over, you know, the readily available information and not really bothering to get much deeper into a topic. Right. I mean, it, it, I, I guess both at the end of the day are done for profit, but at, at, with Macabre, there's a, a genuine sense of passion and uh, enthusiasm for the topic. Whereas I, I think a lot of modern true crime just comes across as a, a quick money grab, something that's easy to do, but whatever. I, I feel like that's a, it's getting a little off topic. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're coming naturally to kind of the end of the interview here. Would you two like to have another go? Are there any like albums that you want to get out before? Oh yeah. There is actually like one thing in music that I wanted to talk about, which was danger music. Mm, you mentioned it earlier with that Japanese band. Yeah, Hanatarash. So Danger Music, there, there's, uh, you know, some of it's not actually music. 
which is great. Like the compositions that thought has been gone into composing it. But um, there was a series that was called Danger Music from which it gets its name, where I think the first composition that I'm struggling to remember the composer's name, it'll come to me eventually. But the very first Danger Music composition was written on a card in, you know, this nice handwriting. And it said, um, volunteer to have your spine removed. (laughs) That was a complete affront to what music was supposed to be. If we think purely from a um, sonic perspective, but it like brings in this um, another part of music, which is, uh, you know, notation and how do you represent sound without using it how do you you know write something down so someone can perform it later and there are very uh shall we say inventive kind of ways of representing that music one of the other one of the other things on the list i saw you put down zach was um threnody for the victims of hiroshima by yes penderecki which uh, the score for that looks wild. It's got the regular five-line stave and then just like thick black sections that the intentions that like with all of your the string players, they play pretty much every note that exists within that region. And he, of course, had to make up little indications on the score for like, you know... Um, knocking on the uh, body of a um, of a violin or the cello or using the back part of the bow and that composition of his was dedicated to the victims of the bombing of Hiroshima and um, Nagasaki yep and within you know classical and neoclassical music that's probably one of the most upsetting pieces to hear there's, you know, these really shrill, incredibly loud, dense sounds that no longer sound like violins. And they no longer sound like cellos. They sound completely alien and foreign. And that representation musically of Tira is just so fascinating. But going like further with you know, inventive notation was this Danger Music series. There, there is another one which, uh, the only one that I've ever seen being performed by this original composer, once again, I'm struggling to remember his name, but one of the other ones, uh, the only one that I've seen being performed, at least his bar lines, and it just has written out six times, scream. 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 Uh, that's got this, you know, really inventive kind of, I, I really admire, you know, thinking about pushing that limit of like, what do we consider music is um, you know, representation of a score of, you know, writing it down is quite an interesting thing. And I'm most of the entries in danger music, if you saw somebody, try to perform it well it's it's kind it's that's real like you know live leak <laughs> ogresh uh run the gauntlet kind of thing 
but then to the more like practical side of danger music, there's an Australian musician called Justice Yellum who plays broken pieces of glass to which he affixes um, contact microphones and then feeds that through a series of distortion pedals and guitar effects pedals and puts his mouth like right on the edge of where that pane of glass is broken and like sings into it will you know bite it do anything to make it create a sound and by the end of his performances there's a there's a lot of blood (laughs) because he just cuts his mouth up like every small like kind of movement running along that sharp edge will open up you know a part of his mouth and watching those live performances is there's heaps of them on youtube and the crowd i've never i've never seen a crowd that was interested in here in you know seeing the performance but also staying really far away except for maybe Gigi allen and it's it's not as if like he's you know flailing it around or threatening anybody it's nobody wants to be close enough to see more detail because they're so averse to seeing what he ends up doing to his face through the performance and all the performances end with him like breaking the glass over his head and i think that you know just seeing that of like one person there with a piece of broken glass is you know evokes far more terror than a lot of stage antics of you know bands which like maybe it's a little bit uh you know a little too negative to say that they're being edgy but there are also a lot of edgy bands out there that are yeah someone literally cutting their mouth open with broken glasses just naturally more evocative than watching alice cooper get his head cut off yeah and i know how you feel about alice cooper so that's uh oh i love the man to bits yeah met him once but that's you know there's a natural difference there between theatrics and something that's very real kind of thing that edwin borsheim from kettle cadaver just dedicated yeah dedicated his life to (laughs) he was someone that took both the horror as fiction but also the horror in in very very real terms and Mm. mixed the two together yeah also clearly not an okay person Mm. psychologically (laughs) You're going to say that? Oh, I was just going to bring up Cattle Cadaver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did a we did a um uh like fun viewing of was it Dead Hags Dig oh, Deep? Dead Hands Dig Deep. We did yeah. a viewing yeah. of Dead Hands Dig Deep. Yeah, and and then no one really wanted to watch A Taste of Blood after that. Yeah, <laughs> and also like I did laugh when you know like it starts with um that that scene where he was like in the bathroom and like filming himself preparing with like safety pins and stuff. Mm. One of our friends just like stood up, like covered his eyes and like, was just like, Oh God, I'm leaving. And it's like, Oh, I remember responding like that. (laughs) And now it's like, I'll, I'll just, watch a surgery and like medical stuff and oh that's fine (laughs) yeah Uh, was there anything zach that you wanted to touch on that we hadn't covered yeah 
any, if anyone wants to read my full list, um, they can either hit me up on Facebook, and of course, you guys can post it in the notes if you want. I'm not going to go through it all here. I did want to touch on, uh, and I'm just going to talk about them as a group. I'm not going to go through them individually uh, because it's something I think we only really briefly brushed up against. Um, if you're looking specifically for something that kind of covers the horror of war, I would recommend Alberic, uh, the album uh, NATO Uniform Men, uh, which is a very, very long power violence epic that I would honestly almost put, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to say because I don't have any context for war, but I, the experiences I've read about people listening to it and the reviews I've seen, I would seem to put it in a class somewhat similar to the caretaker as far as an emotional experience goes along those lines. If you want something a little simpler, there's a band called German Oak that was a part of the Krautrock scene. They were a noise jam band that was uh, kind of doing was doing the same thing uh they were trying to they even actually recorded an old ww2 bunker uh and were trying to replicate the anxiety and the trauma of war now i will warn people if they uh throw that album on it does contain um hitler speeches that were sampled uh by the producer and added as an after effect um, i think there's a more current version out there that has them removed because the band didn't want them on there but, you know, if you throw it on, just uh, maybe headphones, <laughs> um, depending on where you're at. Uh, and I believe there was one more in that trilogy, but uh, I don't remember what it was. So I guess we'll just those two. Um, and then just as a general recommendation, I would say a good 60% of the stuff on my list is from the infamous Nurse with Wound list. And if you're a music fan and you're out there and you're unfamiliar with the band Nurse with Wound, check them out. But uh, even more importantly, uh, in the 80s, the main guy behind the project released a comprehensive list of like 300 or 400 albums that inspired him. And I will just say if anything that any of us have talked about today uh, has resonated with you at all and you're not familiar with that list, go ahead and just dig through it and you'll be entertained for uh, a couple months. Uh, at least. Um, I still haven't hit every, everything on it. And um, I, I found out about it when I was like 14. It's probably the best list of music for me and most important that I've ever found. Uh, so yeah, check that out. I think that brings us towards a natural end. Before we sign off, though, I want to give you a chance to spruik your shit right now, Zach. All right. Yeah. So um, I host a music exploration podcast, we call it, called Shuffle Repeat. It is a it's a music show with no set genre. Uh, we talk about uh, everything from jazz to death metal to obscure prog rock, electronica. And uh, we plan on getting much, much weirder as uh, time goes on. Uh, we have episodes planned from everything from traditional African uh, folk music to, well, throat singing, uh, sea shanties, uh, all sorts of crazy stuff from the, the bowels of uh, rateyourmusic.com. So you guys can check that out. If you don't, if you're a metal fan, you don't mind a unproduced, very raw, very long podcast. I believe Are You Morbid is still out there. I, my friend Don uh, pays for the hosting, um, and I, I think it's still up, but I, I don't actually know. Uh, but that's out there if you're interested. Uh, but yeah, check us out. Uh, we have about 25-ish episodes posted now, as uh, so you can get a little bit of a rough idea of uh, what we talk about. But uh, basically, we look at a 10 albums every week uh, from a set genre. Once a month, we do a random episode where it's just uh, anything we want to talk about. 
and we get super specific. It's usually a, a set decade, a set subgenre within a subgenre. But uh, I don't know if you're a music nerd and you're looking for stuff to listen to. Uh, we try to focus on both uh, big names and uh, mainly smaller guys. Uh, I try to go B level or lower. Um, good, usually a good mix of B and Z uh, level bands. But uh, <laughs> yeah, check us out if uh, it sounds up your alley. Awesome. And I'm a pretty big fan of Shuffle Repeat. So recommendation from me. It, it's a pretty cool show. I've definitely found music that I've quite enjoyed by listening in and, and well usually listening in while I'm at work and not talking to anyone so I know I've got a very specific mood when it comes to podcasts but um I do give it a recommendation there where can they find you on on social media and all that jazz uh well uh if you want to hit up the podcast uh, you can find us on all social at shuffle repeat uh podcast uh I'm on Facebook more than anything else but I, I do have an Instagram and Twitter but uh you can also just find me on Facebook, uh, Zach Mummert. Uh, if you want to add me, uh, you're more than welcome. And the Are You Morbid page is still up. We still use it as a music promotion company uh, in the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania area. Um, and uh, I, I make a lot of goofy memes for esoteric metal bands on there. Uh, and then occasionally I post a Burza meme to get more likes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but my heart is in making memes out of uh, U.S. power metal albums with 300 views on youtube that's my real passion <laughs> that's, uh, where the, that's where the real good content is yeah six for me one for them that's my policy <laughs> <laughs> all right for us here at haunting the studio one you can find us on uh instagram and facebook if you're interested in finding us but more importantly too you'll hear from us again huge thanks to you zach for coming on it's been a really interesting conversation and I've been a big fan since before shuffle repeat started. So it's pretty cool being able to have a chat to you. Yeah. Thanks. It's nice to finally uh, talk for real after years of Facebook friendship. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, hopefully uh, I know it's a little difficult, the time difference, but maybe one day we can get you guys on a uh, shuffle repeat to talk about something. Uh, I do have a couple of New Zealand episodes uh, in the pipeline. Oh, hell yeah. Fuck yeah. Oh, absolutely right. hit us up if you're interested. Um, okay. So yeah, we'll end up we'll end things off there. You can find us where you find us. Absolutely give Shuffle Repeat a follow and whatnot on all of the socials and give it a listen. And besides that, you hear from us next time and uh, we'll leave it at that. That was a Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more of them at r1.co.nz forward slash podcast.